babies are done singing. Amen. Well, you're eager. Look at you up here. I didn't even have to call you. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. It is a mosquito of Ethan the Ezraite. The reason we are reading an obscure psalm this morning is because he's going to talk about what we're going to talk about uh, in the sermon this morning. This is Riley. Riley, please read Psalm 89 for us. Verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mightiest you are, O God, with your faithfulness all around you. Amen. King's kids, if you're in second grade on down, King's kids, you are dismissed. And your older sibling can go with you this week. We have a low count if you want to go too. Your, if your parents think that's okay, I can't, I can't speak for them, but that'll be easy. The rest of you are stuck with me. That's okay. Well, you can say that to my face and to my back. I'm just going to keep on trucking. That's the way I roll. Just keep on going. Uh, turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 7. How dare you teach this at Sunday school and I'm going to preach on it. I, you're like stealing my thunder. Yours was, you don't think I have a plan? I don't. You're right. Just winging it. I'm waiting to see what you teach and then I'm going to reteach it. So speak louder in Sunday school so I can take notes, man. You're like all soft. Oh, you were peeking at my notes. Is it plagiarism when we cheat off each other? Is that how that works? I don't, I'm confused. <clears throat> I contemplated whether or not going this direction in this series on wisdom. And I got this, this visual up to remind you where we are going and why we are going that direction. Um, the wisdom journey. We're trying to figure out how do we live a wise life according to God's standards the very bottom there in the bottom right communication this is where we have to begin God has to speak Bible we see this pattern of communication and then communion and then union all throughout a lot of the characters many of the characters in the Bible God has to speak we have to get some information who he is what he expects and that can just make you religious when you know the facts. But that's not what God is out for. He's not just to educate you. He's not here just to teach you about who he is. He wants you to go to the next level of reaching communion with him. Communion is when we spend 
chunks of time focused on God. Listening, praying, meditating, singing, studying, reading devotionals, increasing not just, not just our knowledge, but our experience. It becomes a lot more personal when we invest serious amounts of time into knowing God. That brings us into a state of communion where we begin to understand why he does what he does. We begin to understand his person. It's, it's personal. It becomes more personal. Instead of just communication, which, is, which can be a one-way road, communion is two people spending time together, getting to know each other. But even that's not the goal. God wants to further our spiritual relationship with him to a point of union. The chief characteristic of being at union with God is what we saw last week when Abraham opened his entire life up and was willing to give up that which he loved the most. And it wasn't Isaac. It was himself. Isaac just represented his hopes and dreams and he had taken all and put it into one person. And God forced his hand open. He had union with God. That's a beautiful thing. A lot of characters in the Bible go through that, that crisis of faith. That crisis of faith usually comes at communion level. The communication is, hey, stop living for yourself. Come on. I'm the Lord. I'm God. Follow me. Live for me. Okay, I will. And then you start living for him. And then he starts putting his finger on the things you haven't given to him. <laughs> and as you spend time with him, as you commune with God, this is the process of learning to live the wisest life there is. Because it's not about wisdom to solve little problems. It's about wisdom to overcome everything. If we remember the words of Jesus, in this world, you will have trouble. Trouble at school, trouble at work, trouble at Walmart, tr trouble at Jumbo, trouble wherever you go. There will be trouble. Something is always going to be causing you grief. Even when you're alone, you're going to hate yourself. Even with the people you love, sometimes they get under your skin. Or sometimes they just have a problem and it, you care about them so much, it, it hurts you. It hurts you to see them hurt. <laughs> Says every grandparent and parent ever. The process for Jesus is you will have trouble, but take heart, he says. Jesus has overcome the world. So we're not just pursuing knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom is God. God's very presence. Starts off at the bottom of that circle there, justification. That's where God saves us. And then he challenges us to change the way we live. Sanctify yourselves. Become holy. There are a lot of things in your life you need to stop doing. That's the process of sanctification. Stop, stop, stop. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But that's not even half of Christianity. There's a lot more, thou shalt. There's a lot more, love your enemies. Love and grace people. Forgive. 
pray for one another. There's a lot more of what we should do, and that's also the process of sanctification. You can get really good at telling yourself no and still neglect all the things God has told you to do. It's not about do this, don't do that. Because that process of sanctification is changing your heart. It's changing your affections. Sanctification is the process of learning to love yourself less. But we don't focus on loving ourselves less. The way God wants us to love ourselves less and get us to that place is really the opposite of that. It's learning to love Him more. Because when you are really in love with something, you don't have to work hard at forgetting everything else. <laughs> when... Oh my goodness, you learned that in high school in a heartbeat when so-and-so walks down the corridor. Or if you're, you know, kind of a geeky nerd, when the newest set of holographic Pokemon cards come out. Or the latest video game drops. The things that we have the strongest affection for naturally cause everything else to matter less when God has our hearts, we don't have to struggle anymore over the same old things. And that's the process of sanctification. And when we get into the wisdom literature, it's coming. The challenge is living for God, putting God first. And here are all these little tips and tricks along the way. That's the wisdom literature. Here's what we should avoid. Here's how we handle our kids. Here's how we handle stress. And the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, even Song of Songs, the book of Job are showing us in the middle of the conflicts of life. There are some tweaks you can do. But even all of those books are going to say, fear God. And that's an Old Testament way of saying, love God. Because it is possible to love the thing you fear and to fear the thing you love. You're not afraid of them, but you're afraid of messing up that relationship. You fear losing their favor. You fear losing their love for you. Fearing God, loving God. And that's the pro but we never stay there. Something always comes up, we always sin. So how do I handle when I fail, when I sin? We get to the bottom, we, we remember who Jesus says we are, we remember we're saved by grace, not by our works, and we get back up and we start the process of sanctification again. And that's the loop of our lives. God has promised He's ultimately going to break through with glorification and fix all that one day, but you have to die to get that. And let Him bring that death in His timing in his way don't speed up your own death please that does not honor God he would much rather have you live for him that's the point and that's sometimes the harder sacrifice to get up and go live the next day <laughs> to get up and go live the next day to get up and go back to work get up and go to school get up and submit to your parents get up and submit to your boss get up submit to your spouse get up and live for your kids get up and <sighs> I'm living for everybody but God. If God has brought them into your life, submitting to them is submitting to God. And you can be sanctified and glorified in the middle of all that. And then we get to King David. And there are so many fantastic illustrations of this whole process in his life. 
But this is not a series on David. So we're not talking about Goliath. We're not talking about his brothers. We're not talking about shepherding. We're going to focus on two things. One thing this week and one thing next week. Because we're trying to use David to further our understanding of the pursuit of wisdom. Last week was Father Abraham. Abraham was justified by faith. His Abraham's sanctification got the highest, was the most holy, when he sacrificed himself to God. And I ended with this, and a lot of people, co- a lot of people have commented on this throughout the week. God does not ask any less of you. Remember that? Well, God hasn't asked me to sacrifice my son. Yeah, he has. Because it wasn't about sacrificing a son. It was about giving up control of that which you love the most. Yeah, God is all over that. He's all over you. He knows what you love the most, and it's yourself. And the things you think make you feel better. And God asks you to sacrifice that. Give up control of your own life. And I turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. The title of uh, this lesson is God's Promises to David from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And that chapter in my Bible is titled The Lord's Covenant with David. David doesn't ask for what's about to happen. David isn't praying for what's about to happen. It has not crossed his mind to ask for this. I think he's still in shock that he's the king because he grew up a certain way, lived a certain way. Yeah, he did a few things. He's led a few armies into battle. He's had a few victories, but this has not crossed his mind. He's not had these aspirations of, greatness God chose him to be the king and you'll read a lot of his psalms we'll talk about that he's still just flabbergasted as an adult as an adult (laughs) God took me from the the fields from the sheep pens and raised me up and he, he penned psalm 23 right the Lord is my shepherd like that that captures his his old life that's how he sees all of life he I think he still sees himself as just a sheep boy just a farm kid and for some reason God has changed his life he didn't ask for this I'm reading verses 12 through 17 in 2nd Samuel 7 listen to this this is God talking when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers David I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name a temple and i will establish the throne of his kingdom forever i will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity or sin i will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men but my steadfast love will not depart from him as i took it from saul whom i put away before you And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. Nathan, 
the prophet spoke these words to David for God. So here's the godly line. God has spoken to Adam and Eve and promised them some things. The promise goes through Noah, the promise goes through Abraham, and now the promise is down to David. And in this passage, the promise goes to his sons. Next blank in your outline. There's this seed of the woman promise in Genesis 3.15. God has promised through humanity, Eve's offspring, he's going to fix the sin problem. But we learn it is not David. <laughs> Write that down. There's a promise. There's a promised one. There's a fix. I'm sending somebody to fix all this hot mess. Hey, humanity, you need help. I'm sending you help. But it's not David. Man, he would have been a good choice. Don't, yeah, well, except for a few problems. But he seemed to he get so close. So close, but spoiler alert. It's not David. The trail of wisdom goes through David's life. And God's wisdom is using David. I think of it like this. God is using everything in David's life to paint a background of a picture to create a frame around that picture but in this passage today God says your son is going to be the picture your eternal throne and kingdom is going to come through your offspring so David's life becomes the canvas the background the scenery the setting the frame for God's agenda or program and I've never thought of David that way he's always been such a prominent figure somebody we do Bible studies about we tell our kids these stories be bold be, be brave like David like slay the giants in your life let God handle it trust in the Lord sing sweet songs to God be faithful all these you know David-esque stuff but in this story God is telling him you're not going to build a temple for me you're a man of war. You are a bloody mess. And he is. He doesn't argue with that. But from you is going to come a person, an actual son or descendant that you're related to, and they're going to have your kingdom forever. So all of David's life becomes the background and the frame. If we want to know about his son, look at David. Want to learn about the promises to that son? Look at David. And that's what this chapter in the Bible is really telling us. God is about to move on from David. What? He's not the promised one. Keeping the journey going. Keeping the wisdom track online. Many of these uh, promises that God gives, uh, they're woven all throughout the Bible. Write this down. That initial design pattern from Genesis and human tendency are still hanging around. Remember God's design pattern in Genesis 1 and 2? Work, multiply, rule. Okay. Those commands and promises are still in play even in David's life. As he works, multiplies, and rules according to God, their kingdom is expanding and growing. That's a good thing. But human tendency, that pattern of seeing something you want that you're not supposed to have, grasping after it, taking it, and then it being sin, 
That's also in David's life. But it's not a fruit tree. It's a woman. Apart from the story about Goliath, I think David and Bathsheba is probably the second most notable thing in his life. Uh, and I think it should be number three. See, sin is still hanging around. He's not the promised one and he proves it. David's worst sins occur whenever he uses his own heart to determine what he thinks is good and then he takes it for himself. That's, that's, that's your problem too. Anytime you deviate from what God says is best, you determine, you try to choose what is good and bad. And you think you're choosing good when you're choosing bad. And you think you're avoiding bad, but you're avoiding good. You get it all mixed up. That's our problem. Listen to the David's two biggest failures. In 2 Samuel 11, David's adultery with Bathsheba leads to the death of two innocent people. Write that down. Two innocent people. Uriah, her husband, David has him murdered in war and tries to cover it up. But all, the, all along the way, David is manipulating. He tells his general, send this, send this Uriah guy up to the front. And then when he's up to the front, when he's in, a, in front of the enemies, have everybody else pull back. David orchestrates this guy's death. That's murder. And then David commits adultery with Bathsheba. She's pregnant. But she's married to somebody else, Uriah. That baby dies. God sees to it that that baby dies. That's David's fault. He caused that. And he owns up to that. Psalm 51. Read it. Put a note there. Psalm 51. You want to see how God responds and how David has to respond to God responding? It is ugly. But then, in 2 Samuel 24, David is personally responsible for the death of 70,000 innocent men. Innocent people. Unbelievable. As I was putting this together, I forgot it was that many. I had to reread that. Like, whoa. That's all of Garfield County and then some. That is a huge amount of people. David disobeys God and the consequences are a lot of people die. He's the king. He has a mighty responsibility to guard and shepherd these people and he fails them. He's not the promised one. And this is why this promise in 2 Samuel 7 blows my mind. David does not deserve these promises at all. He does not deserve God's favor. So what do we learn about David? He's a dirty rat. I, I can identify with that. I'm not perfect either. Okay, but that's not the point of the Bible stories. It's not just to see myself. What do we learn about God in this story? The same thing we learned earlier. He is gracious. He is kind and God is very slow to anger. If you are taking breath this morning 
and your heart is beating, God has been gracious to you. And you have not gotten what you deserve. You do not deserve to be alive right now. We've all sinned. We've lied. We've cheated. We've stolen. We've coveted. We've committed adultery in our hearts. We've committed murder in our hearts by hating people. We've all fallen far short of God's glory. We don't deserve anything good. And yet God has given you today. Thanks for using it wisely. David didn't always use it wisely. And his sins caused a lot of death. He's a little bit like Abraham. Abraham and David both have their high points, but their sins reveal that they're not perfect. But God, in every story, but God. God shows up and God is there with hope. God has chosen to use Abraham. God has chosen to use David in spite of their failures and their sins. Because let's be honest, who else does God have to work with, right? He, this is all he's got is broken goods. So it's all he's got to work with. There aren't any better choices. God chose Abraham from the nations. Uh, and see that. Remember, Abraham, God chooses him. And I'm going to give these promises through your family. And now you boil Abraham's family's big. Out of Abraham's family, he picks a smaller sliver of the family, David. All the nations, one nation. This nation, one family. And verse 12, let's get into some of these promises here. When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. <laughs> you just told David, you're going to die. <laughs> Write that down. We need God to remind us of that. You're going to die. Don't be shocked by that. Don't become unraveled by that either. Plan for that. We wrap our lives around God because we know our lives are going to end. That's the way it should be. You will die, David. If that was the first thing God said to you the next time you prayed, would you have the fortitude to keep listening? He starts with the bad news. <laughs> but it gets better. Your son will be king. Oh. Well, that's cool. I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I was planning on leaving the kingdom to one of my sons, but it's nice that God said it because God is in charge of the kingdom. David is not the son of the previous king. He was chosen directly by God to be king. So in the back of David's mind, God can do whatever he wants. I mean, if God doesn't tell me, then yeah, one of my sons will be the king because that's the natural way we operate. But David would also not have any problem in the world with God coming to him right now and saying, um, this guy from this country is going to be the next king. David would have said, praise the Lord. That's the kind of guy David is because he is that guy. <laughs> oh, you're the king. Praise the Lord. You're not the king. Praise the Lord. He just praise the Lord. Read the Psalms. He's the one who kind of coins that phrase. Praise the Lord. That's him. Whatever's happening in his life, eh, praise the Lord. You will die, but your son will be the king. Verse 13, he will build a temple. Write that down. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, that's odd. 
Okay, he'll build a temple. Good. David wanted to build a temple. God said, no, you can't build a temple. You have too much blood on your hands. Like, literally. But your son will build a temple, and he will, he will receive a throne that is characterized as eternal. There's a kingdom, and there's a throne mentioned, and they're different. This is, listen carefully. A kingdom is a place to rule. Write that down. A kingdom is a place to rule. But a throne, that's the right to rule, and they're different. Because you could be born with the right to rule, and never, it never, you never realize the kingdom. You never get the kingdom. Maybe you're exiled to an island. Maybe you're on the run because there's been a, a coup in the government. But you're still, you're still the next one in line to be the, the king. You still have the right for the throne, even if the throne has been melted down and taken away. So the key on this promise is, I will establish the throne comes first. I will establish the throne or the right of your son's kingdom forever. He doesn't, doesn't quite say I'm going to establish his kingdom forever. And we know the story. He's going to have some bad sons. The kingdom's going to fluctuate. Like, it's going to be invaded. It's going to be broken up. They're going to go away. They're going to come back. It's, it's a hot mess. But the right to rule and to be the king never goes away from David's family line. Even, I, just this morning, I'm reading the end of Ezekiel personally, and Ezekiel, God's vision to Ezekiel is take two sticks, bind them together, and then when everybody asks, hey, why did you bind those two sticks together? You know how prophets are. They're weird, right? Why did you bind those two sticks together? God says to Ezekiel, tell them, this is Judah, this is Ephraim, those are all the other tribes. And now they are one. And now they are Israel. Long story short, it is David's family line that is the throne, the kingdom, that's still rolling, that's still there. And for the rest of history, God is going to call David's line with all the other tribes merged into it, the nation of Israel. I never saw that before this morning. So from then on, from Ezekiel to the rest of the Bible, when you read the nation of Israel, it's not going back to Abraham. It's going straight through this promise in 2 Samuel 7. It's, it's God attaching himself again to his own words. He's going to fulfill it. Yes, it goes through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and they're renamed the Israelites, but it's only David's kingdom of Judah that really holds on the longest and God starts over with them, brings them out of exile, out of captivity and he's reestablishing this, this, 2 Samuel 7, 13. Kingdom is a place to rule, throne is the right to rule. Verse 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's relationship. That, that speaks of God's personal involvement. Next sentence. When he commits iniquity, I'm going to spank his holy butt. God is just warning, like, your son, when he commits sin, I'm going to discipline him with the rod of men. I'm going to use other people 
kingdoms, nations, to discipline your sons when they act up with the stripes of the sons of men. But verse 15, to, wait, fill out consequences for sin. That's the next, the next blank. God's personal involvement. I'm going to be like a father to him. When he sins, I'm going to make him answer for his sin. The king before David was Saul. What happened when Saul sinned? Does anybody remember? He lost the kingdom, right? So this is where verse 15 becomes important. God says, yeah, but with your sons, my steadfast love will not depart from him like it did from Saul. I'm changing the rules. Yes. Because David knows he's not going to have any perfect sons. Sin won't end his rule. Verse 15, write that down. Sin, when the next king sins, God will not end his rule or remove the family throne like God did with Saul. So this promise is dependent upon God. Verse 16 is a repetition. And it clarifies that these promises are towards David, not his sons. Write that down. These promises are towards David. Because verse 16 says, your house, your kingdom. He doesn't say their house and their kingdom. Future tense. It's not about them. It doesn't matter what kind of sons you even have, David. God knows they're going to be rascals. A couple of them are going to be good. A lot of them are going to be terrible. But this is about God choosing David, choosing to move through him. Your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And even though it says the kingdom there, the emphasis over and over again is more on the throne and the right to rule than it is upon the kingdom and the place to rule. And that kingdom is going to vacillate. Sometimes it's strong, sometimes it's weak, sometimes it's non-existent. And then they come. And then somebody else, there, there's a king, but somebody else is the king over the king. Or there's a governor, and then somebody's king over the governor. And the big emphasis here is on the right to rule coming through David's family. And it's about David. Verse 17, a little nugget at the end. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Well, why didn't he just talk to him himself? Why did God through a prophet go? Why did God go through a prophet? Because in this instance, this solidifies Nathan in David's inner circle. Write this down. This solidifies Nathan and David's inner circle. David trusts Nathan now. Nathan has delivered good news. When God has to confront David personally, who is he going to use? Nathan. Just a little nugget. God even knows David's going to fail. This is not about David being perfect. This is about God with a big plan that's bigger. And by the way, FYI, the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah are going to build this future king into the Messiah. It becomes a lot clearer. And then you fast forward, Jesus fulfills all the promises to David. He becomes the one. And even, David, even Jesus, he emphasizes his right to rule as the king over 
where the kingdom is. Jesus doesn't, isn't trying to establish a kingdom. He's out establishing his right to rule. He's the messianic king. That's what he does. He's not fighting against the Romans. He's not out to, to, to topple over the Sanhedrin or the lawyers or the legal. He's not out cursing Egypt. Jesus is not out ending the kingdoms of the world so he could bring his kingdom. He teaches us to pray like this. Thy kingdom, bring it. Jesus is open-handed waiting for God to establish the kingdom. All the while, Jesus knows he's the king. And he's the king from the line of David. How cool is that? So this idea of an eternal throne emphasizes two things. That's what we're learning in, in David's life today. An eternal throne. Two big things. Number one, the eternal throne. Two things. The eternal status corresponds to God's presence. When God is present, things will work out. Eternity is part of God's characteristics. You cannot have an eternal throne without God being in charge of it. God doesn't start an eternal throne and then just let it go, do its own thing, and it's eternal forever. It's only eternal because it's connected to God himself. That's what makes it eternal. It's not eternal independent of God. It's eternal because it signifies God's presence. We need that. Second thing, the physical kingdom will reverse the curse. This kingdom promised to David and his posterity and the future king who's going to rule and reign forever it's going to fix and reverse everything that went wrong in Genesis chapter 3. When everything goes off the rails, there's a king coming who's going to fix it. What this doesn't say is he's going to fix it in two stages. Jesus comes and he fixes it first spiritually by dying on the cross. And he defeats sin and death and hell. He resurrects from the grave, proving he has power over what is actually in control of humanity. Darkness, death, and sin. He picks up his eternal throne. And now this. Dad, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Can I go yet? Jesus is just waiting for God the Father to say, kingdom on three one two three and jesus is on he's back he's waiting that, that's what he's waiting for to fulfill the final promise that is yet unfulfilled to david the establishment of an eternal kingdom it's going to reverse the curse it's going to fix everything which gives a whole lot more uh punch to when Jesus is arrested, standing in front of the Roman who's in charge, and the Roman, Pontius Pilate, says, Are you a king? <laughs> oh, Jesus should have backhanded him for his insolence or melted him. And Jesus says, You say so. Are you the king of the Jews? 
You say so. Answer me. I have the power to kill you. (laughs) You have no power over me except what has been handed to you by my father. My kingdom is not of this world. Comma, dot, dot, dot. Yet. Jesus is okay because he knows God will make it right. But there's coming a day when he's going to make it right. Here's what I want you to see as we conclude. The physical kingdom of David's sons is broken and taken away, but that failure from his sons does not remove the eternal throne or the right to rule from David's family. And all of this, all of this, here's where I'm going, all of this becomes the framework for the book of Proverbs. Hear me. The book of Proverbs is written for David's sons to maintain the throne and maintain the kingdom. Turn, turn to Proverbs with me, real fast. Let's just look at the beginning of Proverbs. Proverbs 1. It's right there. You never noticed it before. Proverbs 1, verse 1. These are the Proverbs of Solomon. Well, what right does he have to speak? Son of David. I'm talking about the things that God told my dad about. The king of Israel. And then down in verse 8, Solomon says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. And then there are nine straight chapters of Solomon telling his sons how to rule and reign in the kingdom. He basically says this, Avoid wine and women. And all the Proverbs are not from Solomon. Proverbs 31 the words of a mother to her son who is the king. You know what she says? Avoid wine and women. Solomon could have used a mom like that. And make sure you find a virtuous, redeemer-like, azer, savior of a wife. Proverbs is meant to be an instruction book for the sons of the kings of David on how to maintain the eternal throne. How many other parts of the Bible have you misread? A lot. This wisdom journey is reframing how we read the book of Proverbs. There are a lot of good tips and tricks in there on how to live your life, but we need to see it from the perspective of David's family line needs to know what is the best course of action for having God's presence in our rule and in our reign. That's where we're going. That's what we're going to get to. It's about maintaining David's eternal throne and kingdom. Last blank. The biblical pursuit of wisdom, it is coming to a head in Solomon. Write down Solomon. Solomon is directly linked through David, through Abraham, Moses, Noah, Adam and Eve, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We can't miss that. Solomon is directly linked to Adam and Eve and all the the big themes of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Why is that important? Because we are getting a front row seat to understanding why your life is the way it is. 
Because your life is David's life. It's Solomon's life. It's Adam's life. It's Eve's life. It's Bathsheba's life. It's Uriah's life. It's, it's everybody's life on full display. And you're like, I'm glad God didn't put all my dirty laundry in that book. You're right. But it's there. The struggles of your heart, your struggle with lust, it's about self-fulfillment on your terms and not God's terms. Your broken relationships, it's about your pride and your anger to be right in all things. And you making sure you get your own way. You're just like David. Everything in your life can be boiled down to these themes from Genesis 3. Can show up in David's life and it's going to show up in Solomon's life. So when Solomon has things to say to his sons in Proverbs, we can appropriate those and take, take them to heart. But remember this, David's, Solomon's, Abraham's greatest need is also your greatest need. And it's not knowing what to do next. It's knowing beyond the shadow of a doubt that you have God in your life. Stand with me. Let's pray. Before we leave David next week, I've got one thing, and I need you to stew on this thing. We are going to look at what I consider to be the most important thing David teaches us in the Psalms. Read the Psalms this week. All of them? Yeah! Yeah, read them all. There are only 150 of them. Some of them are real short. There's one that's real big. Um, you could bite that one up and, you know, challenge my challenge to you is try to figure it out try to think ahead what do you think the most important thing david teaches us in the psalms is let's pray god thank you for david thank you that every time he sinned no matter how many deaths came no matter how dark his nights were no matter how much guilt and shame and pain and sorrow of heart flooded him, he came back. Over and over again, David crawled and wept his way back into your presence. Give us a heart like David. Give us a heart like Abraham. So that when we see what is between us, we give it up. We give it back to you. And we crawl back to you and say, you are good. And we are not. You are full of grace. And we are so needy. God, give us more of yourself. We don't need to know all the secrets to success, to wealth. We don't need to know how to further our careers or even how to fix our marriages. If, God, we will have you, we will love you first. We trust everything will fall into line because you and your grace can meet our needs. That's what we pray for today. With every head bowed and eye closed, is there anyone who says, Pastor, pray for me? I... I have gone to some dark places. But I want to come back. 
Is there anyone who feels like they have committed a sin that they can't be forgiven of? Confess it. Nobody's looking right now. Pastor, pray for me. Would you raise your hand? I would love to join with you. Amen. I see that hand. Anybody else? Pray for me. I feel stuck. Amen. Anybody else? Understand that you don't have to suffer alone. You don't have to hurt alone. And you will not die alone. God, we commit our hearts to you this morning. And we say, we trust you. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.